Well, it is always my privilege to bring the good news to you. Let me bring some additional good news to you today. I want to update you on how things ended after last weekend at intermissions. Um, we, we took the Lottie Moon offering for international missions that pays missionary salaries. We raised almost $30,000 last weekend for that. Um, in addition, uh, we had North Wake projects for our missionaries that they submitted. We raised another $31,000 for that. Um, and every project that was submitted was funded or overfunded. Um, so it'll be fun. Whoa. Did, did Daniel Cresswell just do that? Okay, I, thanks for that. Um, so uh, the, the total uh, at intermissions last weekend, $61,000 was raised at intermissions last weekend to send out to the nation. So um, now you also turned in your Gen 12 commitments for the coming year. Um, targeting eight projects, at least eight initial projects, five in our community, three internationally, including sending the worship team to the Olympics uh, to share the gospel there. And the total so far is pretty awesome, $125,000 we're going to give away this year. We're just going to give it away, okay? The mortgage is paid off, we get to give it away, and that's so far, $125,000 so far, okay? Because you can give more. Um, we'll, we'll let you give more. And, and here's the thing. So far, about a third of us are participating. So a third of our church has committed $125,000. And I know as God enables the rest of you, whether it enables you financially or enables you in faith to join us, uh, that I trust that number is going to rock it up even further. And yes, there's room for you. Come on in. We have other awesome projects waiting in the, in the wings that we can give resources to. But um, $125,000 we're going to give away on top of uh, the 60000 on top of the 60000 that we raised last weekend. So thanks be to God. Thank you for your generosity. There are Gen 12 cards on the wall if you need one. It explains the projects that we're giving and how you can be a part of that. Um, but anytime you want to give to Gen 12, just mark it, uh, tag it on your check or your text or however you give, uh, Gen 12, it'll get, it'll, get, it'll get there. So this year, our spiritual priority to, is to engage our community with compassion that leads to action. Um, to love our neighbors in our community with compassion and hospitality and take the risk to speak to them of the love of Christ for them. Just, just like what you heard Stephanie sharing about. That's what we're about this year. That's what we're praying that God would grant you opportunities to do uh, this year. And in order to fuel that, our elders have, have, have selected the, the book of Jonah as our initial teaching uh, this year. We'll, we'll start that today. We'll, after Easter, after Lent and Easter, we'll get to the Gospel of Mark uh, later this year. But today, we'll begin the book of Jonah and so if you want to find your way there in the sticky pages of your Bible to the book of Jonah, um, let me pray for us and we'll, we'll, we'll dig in. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks because we are only generous because of your generosity to us. Not just financially, Lord, but surely financially you've been kind to us. You've met our needs and given us an abundance that we can share. And so we are glad to do that, eager to do that. Lord, take pleasure in it, even as we do. Um, and Lord, now fuel us to not just love with our resources, but to love with our time and with our words and with our homes, with our lives, the neighbors that you've put next to us and told us to love in the name of Jesus. So Lord, help us with that, even this morning as we open up this beautiful story of the book of Jonah together, by your spirit, for the sake of Christ, we ask these things. Amen. All right, so you're probably familiar with the book of Jonah. In case you're not, watch this. It's the basic storyline of the book of Jonah in 30 seconds. 
God's story. Jonah. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah ran away on a boat. Jonah got thrown off the boat to stop a storm. Fish swallowed Jonah. Three days later, fish threw up Jonah. Jonah told people at Nineveh to stop being wicked and they stopped. God didn't destroy them. And that's a part of God's story. There you go. All right. That's a part of God's story. If you notice, they left off the entire last chapter of the book of Jonah. But it'll, it gives you the basic storyline that, that we're working with. And it's a little more nuanced than that, as we're going to find out today. That's the basic idea. Now, Jonah was an actual guy, historical figure, um, a prophet that lived in the 8th century B.C. So if you do the math, that's like almost 3,000 years ago, the events of Jonah's life took place. Jesus referred to him and the events of this book. He treated them like they really happened. And since we here believe in a God of miracles, we believe in a God who can raise a man from the dead on the third day, um, we'll treat, that'll be our perspective, we'll treat the events of this book like they really happen. That our God can do this kind of stuff um, we'll look at it through those lenses as, as we walk through the book of Jonah. But I want to take a moment before we open the first chapter today and, and help us think about how do you profitably read a story that's 3,000 years old, right? That happened 3,000 years ago. And so for me, whenever I uh, read the Old Testament, um, there are three frames. Think of them as picture frames that help me get value out of reading the Old Testament. And there's a lot more beautiful ways uh, that you can read the Old Testament and get value out of it. Here's three that help me. So let me, let me use actual picture frames to kind of give you guys an orientation. So the first thing I look for is God, all right? And if you're in the cheap seats off to the side, you can't see what I've got, uh, it'll be on the screen, okay? So... I look for God, okay? I look for God when I read the Old Testament, New Testament too, okay? I'm always looking for God. And Jonah paints a stunning portrait of our God. Be on a hunt for God as we read the book of Jonah and whenever you read the Old Testament. So that's the first thing, the first frame that I look for. Now the second frame is is similar but a little bit different. I look for Christ, Okay? And some of you are thinking, whoa, wait, Christ, Old Testament, he didn't show up until the New Testament. Exactly. But throughout the Old Testament, there's this longing, looking, pointing, hoping for the fulfillment of everything that's going on in the Old Testament. And that happens when Christ comes, and especially in his cross work. So that's the second thing that I'll encourage you to look for in the book of Jonah. And you're going to see it really beautifully next week, especially um, when uh, Carson Cobb teaches us the last verse of chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Jonah. Um, So that's the second thing I look for. I look for Christ. I mean, think of it in the Old Testament. Here's an example. The Passover lamb who by his blood spared the nation of Israel from the wrath of God. And we know that that's a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us. He's our Passover lamb. And the Old Testament is littered with things like that. The book of Jonah is a beautiful example. Now, the third frame that I look at is a mirror, okay? I hold up the Old Testament and I say, where am I in this story? Especially these narrative story portions. Where am I? And today, that's going to be really, really significant as we go through the book of Jonah, that you're holding up a mirror and saying, where am I in this story? Let me help you with that. Um, There's a a pattern, a tradition that a number of Jewish congregations have on a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of the Atonement, the most holy day of the year for them. And what they do, one of the things they do in many congregations on the Day of Atonement is they read the book of Jonah in its entirety. It takes like 10 minutes. 
Okay, they read the entirety of the book of Jonah. And then the implied response is this. We are Jonah. We are Jonah. And so as you try to find your place in this story, um, that's your, that's your uh, clue. We are Jonah. And I think you'll find there's an awful lot of Jonah in us as we walk through this story. So with those three frameworks in mind, uh, let's dive into the first chapter of the book of Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, um, we know, uh, that's it, that's all I got there. Okay. We know little of Jonah outside of this book. He's referenced one other time in the Old Testament. Okay. And that's in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14. But we piece together from that one other reference and the book of Jonah we can discern that he was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam, which was about 800 to 750 B.C., and he's from a place called Gath-Hefer, which is somewhere east of Lewisburg. Okay. <laughs> and, and based on what Jonah prophesied in that passage in 2 Kings, it's been suggested by some that to the original readers of the book of Jonah, Jonah would have been remembered as intensely patriotic. Even a highly partisan nationalist. So he's all about Israel, based on what we learn from 2 Kings 14. And that's what makes the commission that God gives to Jonah all the more puzzling. Look, look at the commission that comes in verse 2. Arise, Jonah, God says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, uh, here's, here's a picture, a modern-day map, that shows where the city of Nineveh uh, existed. Now, again, this is history. This is actual places, actual people, actual events. That's, that's, the, way, that's the way this story reads to us. Um, and so in northern Iraq, if you've been watching the news in recent years, the city of Mosul a uh, place where there have been tremendous battles with ISIS. Uh, Nineveh sat right just across the city, across, across the river from the city of Mosul in, in northern Iraq. And um, it's part of the nation of Assyria back in the day. Now, this is an odd calling for Jonah because prophets were normally sent to God's people, not to pagan nations. It happened from time to time, but typically uh, prophets would address God's people, not, pagans, not pagan nations. This is not also just any pagan nation, right? This is a sworn enemy of Israel. So Assyria had already exacted tribute from one king of Israel, an earlier king. Prophets like Hosea and Amos were prophesying warnings of imminent disaster at the hands of the Assyrians. Plus, they really weren't very nice people. Okay? I'm putting it mildly. Historians, a number of historians have noted that Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. Assyrian kings often recorded the results of their military victories, gloating of whole plains littered with corpses and of cities burned completely to the ground. One writer claimed that Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. Okay, buckle up. Let me share some examples with you. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm leaving the other arm in hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. Those who survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The Syrians have at times been considered a terrorist state. 
So Jonah, the patriotic prophet, is commanded by God to go to one of the principal cities of one of the wickedest nations on earth who is a stated enemy of his people, Israel. And he's told to cry out against it. Now, at first, this would seem like a grand opportunity, right? Get to go declare judgment on your enemy. Um, but that's not how Jonah saw it. Verse 2, or verse 3, rather, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down into Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Away from the presence of the Lord, right? So here's the geography for what's going on. He went to Joppa to get on a ship, and Nineveh is like 550 miles kind of eastish. He gets on a ship headed to Tarshish, which is 2,500 miles west. Okay. Um, Pastor Tim Keller has written a really helpful book. If you're just going to read one book along with us in the book of Jonah, I would really recommend uh, The Prodigal Prophet. Um, it's a compilation of his sermons. Um, he's gone at a slower pace than we are. It's more in-depth, and he just does a really beautiful job explaining and inviting us into Jonah. Um, but this is what he writes. He says, um, Tarshish, it is believed, lay on the outermost western rim of the world known to Israelites at the time. In short, Jonah did the exact opposite of what God told him to do. Called to go east, he went west. Directed to travel overland, he went to sea. Sent to the big city, he bought a one-way ticket to the end of the world. Now, why? Why would a prophet of God so radically straight up disobey God? You know, I mean, what we know already of, of Assyria, maybe it was fear, right? Um, I mean, to go to such a violent enemy um, would surely put Jonah in danger personally. Uh, one suggestion is that a modern parallel would be a rabbi sent to pronounce judgment in Nazi Germany. Okay. Perilous. So fear was part of it, but interestingly, it's not that fear. Um, Jonah's going to tell us, and again, another spoiler alert here, in chapter 4, what he was afraid of. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I, said, what I said when I was yet in my country? Nineveh has repented at this point. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So Jonah wasn't so much afraid of what would happen to him. He was afraid of what would happen to the Ninevites. And it wasn't their potential destruction that he was troubled by. He was afraid God would have mercy on them. You see, because that's kind of the implication of going somewhere and crying out against the city in judgment is that you're giving them a chance to repent. And Jonah wanted nothing of that. His, his heart was understandably hard towards the Ninevites, right? He did not want them to receive God's mercy. Tim Keller writes about it. He says, what Jonah is doing is what some have called othering. To categorize people as the other is to focus on the ways they are different from oneself, to focus on their strangeness and reduce them to characteristics until they are dehumanized. We then can say, well, you know how they are, so we don't need to engage with them. This makes it possible to exclude them in various ways, he says, by simply ignoring them or by forcing them to conform to our beliefs and practices or by requiring them to live in certain poor neighborhoods or by just driving them out. We readers are by now, he says, beginning to see that Jonah is in desperate need of the very mercy of God that he finds so troubling. So look again at verse 3. I want you to grasp 
the shape of, of Jonah's sin. Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down into Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Um, see, what was taking Jonah away from the presence of the Lord is not his geography. That's consequential. It's his heart. I want you to see how tangled up love of neighbor and love of God are. They are inseparable. Jonah's unwillingness to love his Ninevite neighbors leads him to flee God's presence. They are inseparable. Remember Jesus had that debate with that lawyer in Mark chapter 12? Remember it? Scribe comes up. Here's people disputing with one another disputing with Jesus and seeing that he answered them well, he asked Jesus which commandment is the most important of all. And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And Jesus answers this man's question about the one most important commandment with two commandments that he then says is one commandment. They are that tangled up. You cannot love God and not love your neighbor. First John 4 in the New Testament says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. They're just, they're inseparable. See, Jonah is failing at the most important of things. His disobedience is a reflection of his unwillingness to love and to bear the news of the love of God to a people that he despises. Jonah is failing to love God in all of this. Jonah's troubles are more with God than with the Assyrians, actually. Tim Keller says Jonah had a problem with the job he was given, but he had a bigger problem with the one who gave it to him. Jonah concluded that because he couldn't see any good reasons for God's command, there couldn't be any. Jonah doubted the goodness, wisdom, and justice of God, and that's what fueled his, his disobedience. The book of Jonah really is, is deceptively titled, right? It's much more about God. Again, that first frame, right? It's much more about God than it is about Jonah. But if you titled all the books that way in the Bible, it would get really confusing. You'd have a book about God and another book about God and yet another book about God, right? So they help us that way. Keep your eyes on God in the book of Jonah, right? Don't miss who God is in the book of Jonah. It's the key to the whole book. Because God will not let his rebellious prophet go. He won't let him alone. He loves him too much. I mean, God could have just let Jonah go to Tarshish and recruited Hosea or Amos or Obadiah or one of the other prophets, right? And said, hey, Jonah's AWOL, you guys do the job. But no. Or, and here's a spoiler alert. He could have let him drown and not appoint the big fish to swallow him. He could have just let the big, swish, big fish swallow him and not vomit him up on the shore, right? But God is pursuing Jonah harder than Jonah can run away. This is who God is. So a good title for Jonah chapter 1 could be, You Can Run, But You Can't Hide, right? <laughs> So great is the love of God for this rebel, rebel prophet. God is not finished with Jonah. He has for Jonah the very thing that Jonah would deny the Ninevites. 
mercy. And so, just in the first chapter, God extends a series of invitations, please, with Jonah to stop running and come back to him. And this morning, if you are running from God, what an odd place to be, right? Church, running from God. That's your first strategic mistake right there, okay? But if you're running from God, know that that this God has mercy for you too. And the fact that you're here means he's pursuing you. So if you see yourself in this mirror of Jonah today, know that there's mercy coming after you. So the first invitation, it comes from the wind. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So the Lord, he wields the wind like a text message, right, to get the attention of, of his wayward prophet. And scholars have pointed out that the Israelites had virtually no or little experience upon the open sea. They're mostly landlocked landlubbers, one of them wrote. And so you're thinking, surely putting a landlubber in the middle of a storm in the sea is going to get this guy's attention. Well, it got someone's attention, but it wasn't Jonah's. Interesting. Look at verse 5. Then the mariners, professional sailor types, right? They are afraid in this storm. Each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So these are seasoned sailors frantically jettisoning their valuable cargo and gear, crying out to their gods to a man, right? Each one cried out to his God, except for one man. Jonah, he's taking a nap, right? So it seems like the sailors are are getting God's message while Jonah ignores it. He's fast asleep because resisting God is a wearisome thing. Don't think otherwise. It offers peace, but it will weary you out, right? And Jonah's sleep smells to me like escapism. And he misses God's invitation in the storm to return to land and to the will of God for him. The next verse, God extends another invitation. And this one's delivered by the captain of the ship himself. So the captain came, said to Jonah, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And so it's interesting. If you notice, it's even reflected in our language that's recorded here. The captain is using some of the same language in his call to Jonah that God used in chapter 1. You see it? Arise and call out. It's exactly what God said to Jonah in the first chapter. It's as though God is speaking through this pagan captain saying, hey, remember me, Jonah? Heard this before? Want to rethink your strategy? Does this sound familiar? The captain goes on and raises the very thing that Jonah is running from. Mercy. God's mercy. And so again, this, this pagan captain urges the prophet of God to wake up and pray to his God. What irony is there in this, right? The unbelieving captain is waking up the prophet to ask him to pray. One writer said, God sent his prophet to point the pagans toward himself. Yet now it is the pagans pointing the prophet toward God. And if you'll note here that God's sovereign might extends even over those who don't acknowledge his name. And so now the pagan captain becomes God's messenger when his own prophet refuses to. 
It's like the rocks will cry out if we don't. So you would expect now, after the invitation of the wind and this captain unknowingly to him quoting God, that in the next verse we would find Jonah's penitent prayer. Not exactly. There's another invitation that's needed. Verse 7, they said to one another, these sailors, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So third invitation from God comes to Jonah by a casting of lots. Um, It's similar, I suppose, in concept to, to what we would do with drawing straws. In fact, I love the way the Message Bible puts this. So they drew straws, and Jonah got the short straw. Right? <laughs> and so this random act of chance, right, becomes God's messenger, like the storm, like the captain. Now, chance becomes God's messenger to invite Jonah to repent of running from God and his will. Now, uh, drawing straws is probably not the recommended way to discern the will of God these days. We have the scriptures. We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But, man, you see how sovereign God is? He is orchestrating down to the detail here. Over wind, over captains, and now the random casting of lots. So the verse 8, the sailors say to Jonah, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? They're just badgering him with questions. Rapid fire. And they want to know, bottom line, which God are we going to have to appease in order to survive? Okay. So verse 9, Jonah says to them, I am a Hebrew, and I... Fear the Lord, right, Jonah. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So Jonah responds with he's the God of the sea and the dry land. That's not the normal order in Scripture. Normally it's the other way around. Um, But I think Jonah has on his mind that his God is, is the God of the sea at this point in time. And Jonah finds himself here trying to escape the God who made the sea in a boat. This is a really, really bad strategy, right? And now this invitation kind of unfolds even further. It's brought by these sailors. They rebuke Jonah saying, uh, the men, they're they're exceedingly afraid. They, They feared a great fear. They say to him, what is this that you have done? For the man knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And that's God's name. That's Yahweh. Because he had told them. God is using their question to rebuke Jonah for his selfishness. They knew, as Jonah had to know, that sin has innocent victims. There's a ripple effect. And now these sailors' lives are put in danger by Jonah's selfishness. How many of our neighbors could say the same thing to us? Watch this little video blog. You've probably seen it before by atheist musician Penn Gillette of Penn & Teller. Um, He's an atheist. Listen to what he has to say about proselytizing, which is another way to say evangelism. And I've always said, you know, that I I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to 
believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that. I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. So here we have a very similar situation to Jonah and the sailors, don't we? The unbelievers are speaking truth to us. And Penjolet, of all people, is saying, how much do you hate your neighbors? I mean, how many unreached peoples are yet to hear of the love of Christ for them because we won't go? Or because key resources are tied up in double car payments and bloated mortgages? Sinful self-indulgence comes with a price. We never sin in a vacuum. And again, our sovereign and merciful God is using unbelieving sailors as his mouthpiece <clears throat> to rebuke his mouthpiece, his spokesman. What irony. <clears throat> There's another invitation that's needed for Jonah, though, and it comes with a bizarre twist in the plot of the story. So they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? The sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. It's interesting. God has put Jonah right where he didn't want to be, doing the very thing that he did not want to do being the key to deliverance from God's judgment to a bunch of pagans. It's exactly where he is. It's exactly what he's running from. It's exactly what God says him doing. And you read this and you wonder, is there a change? Finally, is there a change in Jonah's heart here? It was customary in some of the ancient Near Eastern religions for um, mariners to offer sacrifices to their gods when there was a storm. And is it... It's Jonah having a change of heart here and offering himself in that way. And I, you know, I really hope so. I'm like cheering for Jonah through this whole thing. I hope so. But I think the best we can say is that Jonah seems to be in process here, maybe. Um, I mean, how hard-hearted do you have to be to choose death over repentance? So more invitations from God are going to be needed for this prophet. Another invitation, again, comes to Jonah from the sailors. This one feels more like a rebuke by their actions. It says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And God is now using these pagan sailors to demonstrate righteousness, righteous behavior, even mercy to Jonah. They really don't want any part of taking this one man's life. Unlike Jonah, who is willing for hundreds of thousands of people in Nineveh to perish. So, they eventually give up and they call out to the Lord in verse 14, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord. And those lords are capitalized in your Bibles. Um, they, they represent God's name. These sailors are using God's name here, Yahweh. For you, O Lord, have done it as you pleased. So the sailors call on Yahweh by name using God's covenant name, and they acknowledge his absolute sovereignty over their world, everything from the raging wind to the casting of lots, and they say, Yahweh, you have done as you pleased. And they plea for his mercy as they cry out to him. And we see here God is mighty. The sailors see it. He's mighty and he's merciful. And you have to wonder, why are the sailors praying to Yahweh, and Jonah is not. 
There's no prayer from Jonah in the first chapter of the book. And here's the thing. If you are making decisions and choices, and you are doing that prayerlessly, could you be running from God? See, see, these praying sailors ought to smack Jonah in his prophetic face, right? Come to your senses, man. God is at work all around you. He is surrounding you with his severe mercy. He hurls a storm. He speaks to the captain. He has you draw the short straw. And, and now the pagan sailors are praying to your God. Wake up, Jonah. But he doesn't. And so they pick him up and they hurl him into the sea and the sea ceases its raging. God stills the storm that he once hurled as Jonah is hurled to his apparent demise in the sea. Stay tuned, chapter 2. Right? Sailors get the message. Look at verse 16. Look at how our passage ends. The men feared the Lord. Again, that's God's name, the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. So what do we make of these sailors here? Is this just like a foxhole conversion, right? Where they are just adding God to their assortment of gods in an attempt to save their skin? You know, I'm, I hope not. I, I like to think this is the real deal. Um, the writer is piling up their positive responses to Jonah's God. They pray to Yahweh. They use his covenant name repeatedly. They fear him. They offer sacrifices to him. They make vows to the God of heaven. I sure hope their conversion to worship Yahweh's God is real. And while Jonah refuses to fulfill his vows, the sailors are making vows to his God. Professor Daniel Timmer says, Jonah's anti-missionary activity has ironically resulted in the conversion of non-Israelites. And so, this final invitation, God uses Jonah to accomplish the very thing that he was fleeing. The repentance and salvation of those outside his people, non-Israelites. So again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, God calls out to Jonah, surrounds him with mercy, and beckons him to repent and return to me. How hard has Jonah's heart gotten? And I think... As we think about the mirror of Jonah, it's important today for you to reflect on your own heart. That maybe this is why God has you here today to hear one more time the invitation from a loving God to lay down the foolishness of your sin and rebellion against him. This is one more, one more invitation to turn from that vice, from your apathy, from your bitterness, from your self-centeredness. And Jonah here went from ship to storm to being thrown overboard to the belly of the great fish, we'll see. You know, how severe are God's messages going to have to be to you before you respond and say yes? Say yes. Let's review these three frames. This is our, this is our passage. So, first one, looking for God, right? Looking for God. This is a remarkable portrait of the sovereign might of God, wouldn't you say? It's pretty comprehensive. He's over the sea. He hurls the sea. He's over the captain. He speaks for him. He's over the sailors. He's over the, the, the storm, the casting of lots, and as we're going to see, a great fish. All of these things, everything in this story does God's bidding except Jonah. So, in light of that, hey, don't run from God. That would be like the definition of folly, running from God. 
He says he's the maker of the sea and the land. It's what, what uh, literary folk would say means everything, everything, right? He's over it all. Where can you run from God? It's, it's foolishness. And he wields the slingshot of his sovereignty to deploy his mercy. Okay? He's spraying it all over Jonah. He can't get away from it. Jonah's trying to run from the mercy of God. He can't. God's patient mercy, time after time after time. I count seven or eight extensions of mercy to Jonah in this passage. Wooing him back. And this continues throughout the book for Jonah, all the way to the end. God is so very patient and merciful towards Jonah, and he's so with us. Listen to this psalm. It says it plainly. The, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Chapter 1 of Jonah tells us that our God is a relentless lover who pursues his people and will not let us go. His mercy is greater than the stubbornness of our sin. You can always come back. You should come back to God today. He is pursuing you. Don't run from God. Run to him. What about the second uh, frame? Looking for Jesus in the, in the book of Jonah. Um, next week, you're going to see with amazing clarity and power how Jesus does like a direct connect to the book of Jonah. He calls it the sign of Jonah. And it's, it's really, really beautiful. Um, there is, there's an interesting parallel in our chapter, um, in Mark chapter 4. I don't have time to read you the story, but you remember, see if you can pick up on the parallels here. Jesus is in a boat in a storm, and he's asleep. Okay, Sound, sound familiar? Uh, I like the way Tim, Tim Keller picks this up. He says, both Jesus and Jonah were in a boat, um, and both boats were overtaken by a storm. The descriptions of the storm are almost identical. He says that, that Mark is deliberately laying out this account using language that's parallel, almost identical to the language of the account, the Old Testament account of Jonah. In both stories, the sailors wake up the sleeper and say, we're going to die. And in both cases, a miraculous divine intervention, and the sea was calm. In both stories, the sailors then become even more terrified than they were before the storm was calmed. Two almost identical stories, he says. In the midst of the storm, Jesus said to the sailors, in effect, there's only one thing to do. If I perish, you survive. If I die, you will live. And then they threw him into the sea. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, one greater than Jonah is here, and he's referring to himself. He says, I'm the true Jonah. He meant this, someday I'm going to calm all storms, still all waves. I'm going to destroy destruction, break brokenness, kill death. How can Jesus do that? He can only do it because he was on the cross when he was thrown willingly like Jonah into the ultimate storm under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us, the storm of eternal justice of what we owe for our wrongdoing. That storm wasn't calmed, not until it swept Jesus away. See, Jonah is pointing us here, even through those kind of backstage kind of parallels, to one greater than himself, and that one is Jesus. And so this morning, Jonah is pointing you to Jesus for rescue. What about that mirror? This last one. What about the mirror in Jonah? You see yourself in Jonah? 
You know, in his book, uh, Your God is Too Safe, Mark Buchanan describes an encounter between a Korean pastor and Japanese church leaders that had the potential to mirror Jonah's encounter with the Ninevites if it weren't for Christ. He says, I heard Paul Yonggi Cho speak a few years back. Yonggi Cho um, at that time was the pastor of the largest church in the world in South Korea. Several years ago, as his ministry was becoming international, he told God, I will go anywhere to preach the gospel except Japan. He hated the Japanese with gut-deep loathing because of what the Japanese troops had done to the Korean people in World War II and to members of Cho's own family during World War II. The Japanese were his Ninevites. And through a combination of prolonged inner struggle and several direct challenges from others, um, finally an urgent and starkly worded invitation, Cho felt called, called by God to preach in Japan, and he went, but he went with bitterness. And his first speaking engagement was to a pastor's conference with a thousand Japanese pastors. And Cho stood up to speak, and what came out of his mouth was this, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. Trust me, it's not how you want to start your, your sermon. <laughs> and then he broke and wept, and he was brimming and desolate with hatred for the Japanese people. And at first one, then two, and then all 1,000 of those Japanese pastors stood up, and one by one, they walked up to Yongi Cho, knelt at his feet, and asked forgiveness for what they and their people had done to him and his people. And as this went on, God changed Cho. The Lord put a single message in his heart and mouth. This message was, I love you. I love you. I love you. Buchanan says, sometimes God calls us to do what we least want to do in order to reveal our heart, to reveal what's really in there. How powerful is the blood of Christ? Can it heal hatred between Koreans and Japanese? Can it make a Jew love a Ninevite? Can it make you reconciled to, well, you know who? Let's pray.